Hello everybody, uh, this is uh, 2019 current issues with hepatitis as is pertinent to a Floridian healthcare provider. I made this for a grand rounds. So I just want to use this also as a podcast for our trainees. Um, I have no conflicts of interest to disclose. We're going to talk about certain issues. Obviously, this is not going to be each and every issue about these different hepatitides, um, but kind of a broad view over hep A, hep B, hep C in terms of epidemiology, history of present illness, potential treatments, whether it be via vaccines or medications. So to kind of tie everything together, we're going to have a case to start out with a 50-year-old a uh, female with past medical history significant for non-small cell lung cancer who was a patient at a tertiary cancer hospital. A uh, patient was complaining of fatigue, occasional cough. Uh, upon further examination by the primary oncologist, the patient complained of abdominal pain episodically without any particular localization. The patient also stated um, that the day after the initial visit, she was complaining of vomiting and diarrhea. On physical exam, you can see by the vitals, nothing outstanding. Respiration rate was 16. She was alert and oriented. Mucosa was moist. Heart was regular. Belly was non-tender. No lymphadenopathy. There was no rashes and not jaundice. You can see though, definitely there's a period of time where there's some abnormal LFTs, AST, ALT, and then subsequently total bilirubin. When you look at the amount though for the AST, you're running between the 600s and 800s. ALT is running just shy of 1,000. Bilirubin in the real, realistically, is not so elevated comparatively, just barely outside the boundaries of within normal limits. So then before we start the education part of this, you wanna kind of get your thought process working. What is your differential diagnosis and why? So what do we have? You look at your patient has more of an acute transaminitis situation than a bilirubin issue. Is it a two to one ratio leaning towards things more like alcohol or a one to one ratio thinking about things more like infection? What in types of issues could have a transaminitis without a bilirubin elevation or even really an ALK-FOS elevation? Other things that you have to clarify with the patient are their exposures at work, exposures at home potentially, recent blood product receipt, change in any medications. Has anyone in her household had similar symptoms because there can be certain outbreaks that have similar issues? Over what period of time did this occur? Are there coagulation defects that are ongoing simultaneously as well? So with these questions kind of murmuring in our heads, you know, we want to talk a little bit about hepatitis A. It is the most common type of acute hepatitis. It is an RNA virus. It can unfortunately survive up to a month at room temperature. It has a wide range of incubation between 15 and 20, 50 days. The average is 28. One to two weeks prior to symptoms, understand though that this is the time of the highest viral load in the stool and the most infectious time period to other people, mind you, before you have symptoms. Transmission is fecal-oral, tends to come from close contacts, whether a household contact, contact via sex in a men who have sex with men, daycares. 
It can also occur via contaminated food or water, like infected food, raw shellfish. Blood exposures is very rare. This is just a graphic um, also showing the different breakdown. Unfortunately, still a significant number of the cases are unknown on how they go from person A to person B. In terms of clinical manifestation, there's usually an acute self-limited illness, fever, malaise, jaundice, anorexia. Older children and adults usually are symptomatic with jaundice in more than 70% of the patients. You can have a prolonged infection and relapsing disease for more than six months. Fulminant hepatitis up until this recent outbreak that has been in the news tended to be rare but can occur especially if you have underlying liver dysfunction. If you're seeing patients with liver dysfunction, this is definitely the type of patient you want to prophylactically vaccinate to make sure they don't have a second problem like hepatitis A on top of their baseline issues. I really like this graphic because it shows you know, the hepatitis A in the feces, then the jaundice as the ALT goes up, and then it's only then you can start doing labs to prove or disprove your issue whether it's IgM first, then followed by IgG, remembering, of course, that IgM is a large molecule and therefore does not cross the placental border. This is SNAG from Dynacare, which is up in Canada where I did some of my training. This is again just showing if you are IgG positive, there's no active infection, but it could be reflective of the fact that you've had a vaccine in the past say like myself but if you have IgM positive like that last notation plus or minus IgG that this is consistent with acute or recent hepatitis A infection. Still talk about hepatitis A so in 2011 as you can see there was almost 1400 cases there's a, they thought that there was even more, that these are just a number of ones that were reported. You can see the details here about how they were transmitted, these different outbreaks, whether it was a priest giving communion, travel to the Caribbean, a food handler in a major restaurant. What's concerning is these numbers continue to increase. This is from the CDC as of 2017. We continue to have more reported and even more estimated cases. And then this is the most concerning that had come out in a recent letter from the Florida Department of Health. Talk about in 2018, there were more than 22,000 cases um, in the US. Florida, we had more than 3,500 cases. And then what's really significant is that 78% of these individuals were admitted to the hospital and there were even 51 deaths during this outbreak. This is very somewhat actually unusual to have such a high number of deaths, but it's an ongoing outbreak that we're struggling to get under control. Takeaway points for hepatitis A. It is the most common. High-risk patients, daycare exposure, international travel, MSM, and IV drug abusers. Syndrome presentation, transaminitis tends to be more than 10 times normal. Incubation up to 50 days. Not chronic, but you can have relapses. And that for those who are high risk or have underlying liver disease, that vaccination is what you should do. What I found very interesting was that the exact duration of protection after vaccination is actually unknown. If you received the three dose vaccine as a child, we've been able to show that you have protective antibody for at least 20 years. Even if you had the two dose vaccine as a child, we have been able to show 20 years worth of protection. 
Even more interesting is that there have been some cases that we've been able to prove that for more than 40 years you have protection from the vaccine. Therefore, this vaccine is very much worthwhile to get in order to protect yourself for at least a couple decades. Moving on to hepatitis B uh, virus. So now this is the second most common acute hepatitis. It's a DNA virus, unlike the previous. Transmission number one is via blood, is whether it be personal contact or instruments that are infected with blood, like a needle stick, a contaminated glucometer. It does not unfortunately take very much blood to pass on this infection. The presentation is a discrete onset of symptoms such as nausea, anorexia, fever, malaise, and abdominal pain. And then you have jaundice with elevated ALT more than 200. So when you're working up hepatitis B, please still understand you have to rule out hepatitis A first. And then you work up to hepatitis B, you get surface antigen, which is the infectious moiety. And then you're looking for hepatitis B core, which again, hepatitis B core, you would only theoretically have if it was a true positive, would be from exposure to the virus. I really like this graphic because it just shows hepatitis B disease progression. There's a similar graphic that I will show for hepatitis C. Um, the idea being an acute infection, the majority of children, because their immune system does not recognize the hepatitis B as abnormal, it unfortunately does go to chronic, but in adults, the majority of adults clear the infection. And then you can see how the graphic as you go from left to right, uh, five to 10% goes on to have hepatocellular cancer, which can go to death if you do not treat it, or if you meet criteria for a liver transplant, you require liver transplantation. This was a lot worse in terms of before we had a good vaccine for children, especially trying to stop that infection between parent to child, as well as before we had very good antivirals to stop the replication of the hepatitis B in all the cells of the body. This was a different type of graphic that I like because it kind of shows the difference between antibody detection and antigen detection. So whereas in the antigen, the first infectious component is the surface antigen, and you have also B, uh, e antigen and then you have your different antibodies that you can obviously look for understand this is where if you've received a drug that's b cell depleting you can alter the way your antibodies are able to be measured therefore having a harder time assessing for hepatitis b status it's an excellent graphic talk about the serological changes for acute hepatitis b First, you have your hepatitis B surface antigen go up and come back down. Then you see going from left to right. The next one is your dotted line for the DNA polymerase. Then the next line is a black dotted line, hepatitis B E antigen. Then the next full line is the red one that's the alanine aminotransferase. Then you have your dotted one that goes way up when you're having the acute hepatitis as your anti-hepatitis B virus core. And then as you can see the rest of the graphic, and of course there's a break in time between acute hepatitis and convalescence, depending how your immune system is working. 
This is just a different way of looking at it from if you're just screening someone to look for surface antigen. Honestly, for me in transplant, we do surface antigen and core. For a diagnosis, you have a larger range of labs that we check. And for monitoring, you want to make sure, do they reactivate their antigen? Do they keep their BE antigen? Do they get anti-E? And then um, if you want to be very particular about the number of hepatitis B DNAs floating around in your patient, you could do hepatitis B DNA or NAT nucleic acid testing. This is actually more and more programs are flipping over to NAT testing. I really like this one. I actually have it on one of my quizzes that I give to the trainees. If your surface antigen positive by itself, that's acute infection. If your surface antigen and core positive, this could be acute. Chronic carrier, if you have normal enzymes like in pediatrics. Chronic carrier or chronic active hepatitis B with an elevated AST, this would be more in adults with hepatitis B. The next scenario being only hepatitis B surface antibody positive, this would be consistent more with immunization or very rarely, I've seen it less than a handful of times, remote infection where they've not only you know, cleared their surface antigen, but they also lost their core. This often is either infection was quote unquote a long time ago or they've received some um, B cell depleting drugs that this is what can happen. If someone has core positive and surface antibody positive as a combination, this is definitely consistent with remote infection. The next one is a very difficult one. If you just have isolated core, you have to think of, is this a false positive? Maybe you have a rheumatic type of base disease, so your antibodies in the patient is interacting with the assay. Is this a window period where you're segueing from left to right? Is this remote infection where you have lost your antigen, but you have yet to create surface antibody? So definitely very hard um, to tell what it is in reality. It depends on your patient as a whole. Are there an immunosuppression, whether or not you can just watch them, or do you actually need to put them on suppressive therapy? The last scenario I've actually never seen in person, but it was cited in the original um, text that I kind of re-rendered this where all three are positive and essentially is more than one strain of hepatitis B virus is in your patient and this is why you have all three um, antibodies present. This is uh, taken from the AASLD website about when and how do you treat. So the first two lines is if your hepatitis B E antigen is still positive and then based on your fibrosis score, do you treat? So the first one with a fibrosis score zero to F2, you just observe. If you are E antigen positive and your fibrosis score three to four, this is where you can use interferon or nucleoside um, drug as long as, you know, as it mentions there, no decompensated cirrhosis. If your E antigen negative, then it breaks down to more different options. And then you have a couple different options in terms of drugs. The problem is that you see from the last two lines under comments for treatment is that you're likely going to be on chronic therapy because it's very hard to clear the infection permanently. So if you talk about duration and dosing, so preferred regimens, if you use pegylated interferon, you're talking about 48 weeks of therapy. 
If you're talking about Intecavir, you do not get to use it if the patient has lamivudine resistance. This is very important. If you're using Tenofovir, the TAF variety, this is you use for 24 to 48 weeks after seroconversion to anti-hepatitis BE antigen. You may need indefinite therapy if you are unable to get this to happen. Alternatives for treatment of active hepatitis B, no longer able to use lamivudine or the other drugs that are mentioned there. If you are co-infected with HIV and hepatitis B, you can still use Truvada and your other HIV meds to make sure you have triple therapy. Moving on to hepatitis C, we now flip back to another RNA virus. This is transmission is via bloodborne infections, for example, IVDU or unsafe medical procedures. For example, there have been cases where you have a vial of a multi-use drug. You pull out some of the drug, you give it to patient A who you don't know has hep C. You put the needle back into the vial, you take out more, you go to patient B, you then just can infect by accident patient B. There are six genotypes, 80% in the US is type 1A or 1B, 20% are the types 2 or 3. The drug response appears to be best for uh, genotypes 2, 3, more than 4, and more than 1. Um, this is especially was a big issue when we were still using the older style drugs like pegylated interferon with ribavirin. Uh, more than 75% of patients are asymptomatic. This is why the CDC has that carte blanche recommendation, especially for baby boomers, at least once should be tested for hepatitis C because they are asymptomatic until they have cirrhosis. If your hepatitis C is cleared within three to four months, there's no treatment. Um, if your hepatitis C becomes chronic, then definitely in this day and age being 2019, the directing acting antivirals is definitely your drug of choice. This is just an algorithm snagged from the CDC talking about, you know, if you test for hepatitis and it's negative, obviously you stop. If it is positive, then there are different testing that you can do, especially like I mentioned before with hepatitis B, hepatitis C, we also do NAT testing to evaluate to see whether or not you meet criteria for therapy. This is again a different rendition from Dynacare because in Canada they do things a little bit different. They tend to think that NAT testing is a little bit too expensive for everyday use. Um, so they have their algorithms are still looking at anti-hepatitis C as well as hepatitis C RNA. And as I mentioned before, at my particular facility, we tend to just do NATs. I really like this one that I snagged from the Cleveland Clinic because it talks about you have a normal liver, you get an acute infection, and that chronic infection unfortunately occurs in 80% of the patients, cirrhosis develops in 20%, and unfortunately you have 1-4% to risk of carcinoma per year. And then there's these different kind of speeds of which this can progress along the top is the slow progression over more than or equal to 30 years if you're female you're young at the time of infection but if you have fast progression statistically you are less than less than or 20 years worth of progression for the infection alcohol concomitant use and co-infection 
So like I said, actually kind of like the inverse to what you see in hepatitis B is what you see for hep C in that the majority of hep C goes to chronic infection. Prior to discussing based on the, all the different pieces of information, the therapy for the patient, you need a liver biopsy. At minimum, you need the, or recommend a non-invasive testing for assessing fibrosis or cirrhosis. An example would be FibroScan. Prior to starting therapy, you have to assess for concomitant infections like hepatitis B because you can understand that if you start to treat one hepatitis, the other one goes out of control and then your patient dies of fulminant liver failure. Those with decompensated cirrhosis should only be treated by hepatologists who are taking care of hepatitis C all the time. And then I just put in for reference, you know, kind of like the suffixes, it is referencing what type of inhibitor it is. When the DAAs first came out, there was one drug, then two drugs, and then now there's just a plethora. So I took snapshots from the Sanford guide as reference. You can see here, for example, the Clinza. It has, um, you have to be careful about the CYP3A inhibitors. You have to, whenever you have a patient who's being evaluated, you're essentially looking at the genotype and you're looking at their insurance and what is available and for your formulary, but especially if you're looking from your clinic and it could be the formulary for the patient's insurance that's gonna dictate to you or if you're in the VA system, then what is the VA system dictating to you? But definitely sofazibir was very big at one juncture in time. But when I went to go update this, there was a definitely way more number of options. Harvoni was huge at one juncture in time. Um, definitely Abcluza is still very popular. This is more just to name these drugs so you can hear these words understand what type of drug they are and what's the indication. As you can see, the last one, pegylated interferon, is definitely rarely used and no longer a recommended regimen for hepatitis C. Kind of changing thought processes here that when you hear hepatitis, you have to make sure they're not talking about like a mono-like syndrome. So hepatitis, A, B, C, D, E, the high transaminitis, there's other lacking symptoms but a mono-like syndrome like you have ebv cmv acute toxo definitely do not miss an acute hiv you have a lymphocytosis fever lymphadenopathy that usually goes along with this type of scenario splenic pain if you actually have spleenless mono then think more so acute toxo if you're looking say hepatitis and immunosuppressed patient or allotransplant specifically you have to be like, is that something related to the GVHD prophylaxis or am I looking at GVHD? Is it related to the drugs like ATG? Did I use uh, an anti-CD20 drug? So now I've unrevealed what the patient already had or is it a different infection? Do we have an acute CMV, EBV or adenohepatitis? We think we just had a recent HHV6 hepatitis scenario. Unfortunately, not easily available is it to prove that there's HHV6 in the, the fluid that we were able to remove via paracentesis, VZV, there are many other types of infections in theory, but again, harder to actually prove in reality or clinical practice. You have to make sure there are no drugs that the patient is taking leading to a hepatitis type of picture. So intrinsically damaging to the liver that's dose dependent is Tylenol and alcohol, hypersensitivity there, 
though usually you're not seeing nivirapine, you still do see a Bacavir being utilized, dilantin and sulfur medications, idiosyncratic, isoniazide, valproic acid, cholestatic. You can see the two drugs from the HIV sector there as well as erythromycin. Directly toxic, as mentioned, the INH and the acetaminophen, hypersensitivity there, cholestatic. I apologize for, it looked like it came up twice. In comparing hepatitis A, B, C, and E, this is a very neat graphic that I pulled from uh, Wikipedia, I believe is this uh, version, but there are many others, whether it's on up-to-date, just comparing and contrasting. The main thing to look at is hepatitis B is a big one that is DNA, whereas the other viruses are all RNA. And then you can see the wide range for incubation periods, as well as in theory, severity and chronicity. Um, hepatitis A is now no longer kind of cooperating with this whole idea that it's mild, considering we have quite a number of deaths, but it's still mild in comparison to the damage that can occur from hepatitis B and hepatitis C. Uh, one notion, uh, thing to mention about hepatitis E is also please remember that pregnant women are especially at risk. Five top things from hepatitis to remember the most common hepatitis is A. Second most common is B. Vaccine preventable is going to be uh, hepatitis A and hepatitis B, the mono-like hepatitis syndromes is statistically going to be acute HIV. The more immunosuppressed the patient, the wider the differential becomes. In terms of bonus, I like this graphic that I kind of recreated myself. That the reason why hepatitis C we're able to just treat and eradicate it is that you can see the viral RNA is out in the cytoplasm. Whereas with HIV, it's integrated into the nucleus, into the actual DNA. And the best goal we can look for right now in terms of normal therapies is long-term suppression of the viral replication. And with hepatitis B, all cells have this closed covalent circular DNA. So again, the long-term suppression, whether it's with a tenofovir-based regimen or in tecavir because the DNA is just suppressed, it's not fully eradicated. So back to the case, the case showed that the patient had been tested for hepatitis A, B, and C. So I recommended to, since the patient had persistent elevated liver enzymes, to redo the A, B, and C, maybe the patient had converted, do a right upper quadrant ultrasound with Doppler to rule out a clot causing this type of damage, HIV testing to rule out that acute kind of pro-viral type of syndrome, consider other immunological cases, as well as reevaluate is the patient taking Tylenol, is the patient taking herbals, and then when we spoke further with the primary team, they were on a new type of drug that is considered an anaplastic lymphoma kinase blocker, which is known to have nausea and GI side effects, but no actual transaminitis per se. But the problem is it to get to steady state takes seven days. And so if it really is from this drug, you know, the doctor is complaining, well, I stopped the drug, it's not improving. I'm like, well, it took a long time for the drug to get to steady state. It's going to definitely take an equally long time for the patient to come off of steady state to see if there is any improvement. With that, I just wanted to, you know, mention my team. 
this is our stewardship group that all of our pharmacy, our infection prevention specialists, our micro specialists, as well as all of our team members, um, the physicians and EPPs that it takes to make us continue to give or allows us to give um, grade A care for our patients. And of course, obviously, if you're living to the, listening to the podcast, you know about our ID podcast. I would c recommend that you continue to listen and look for new lectures that pop up. Thank you very much.